Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Well, I'm back with one of, well, I mean, I shouldn't be biased as a host, but one of my favorite guests, one of the OGs around here, and uh, a guy that's been on here, I think, I mean, the only person that I think maybe has has uh, been a guest more times, and I don't even know that that's the case, is Noel Gandy. Um, that's, you're an elite company right there, buddy. Uh Noel was uh Noel Noel's bucks get featured on TV now and uh he's a he is a guy who does it kind of the same way you do. He identifies specific bucks and lets them grow and uh gets after them at the right time. But uh it's so good to have Cole Young back. I've told so many times told so many people so many times that uh if I was a buck I would never want Cole to know about me because I'd be as good as dead. Uh, he's he is the uh, big buck boogeyman, and uh, it's good to have you back, buddy. But um, before we like go through all the, the all those you know the introductory stuff, we were just having a great conversation that I think is worth talking about on here that a lot of people could pull something from. We're talking about getting our kids into hunting. Cole and I, uh, you know, well, Cole made this announcement on this podcast a few years ago. Um, it's got a fourth, fourth, uh, kid coming here soon. And, uh, or that's what he said at the time. And, uh, so it's my turn to make, uh, my, it's my turn to make my announcement. Now our fourth kid is coming in May. And, uh, I, you know, as soon as I, as soon as we found out we were having a fourth kid, I actually thought of you, Cole. And I thought of back to that episode when you had, you had, uh, mentioned that, uh, you and Ariel were expecting your fourth. And I think your, is your, is your fourth, it, are they like two now? Is that, is that about right? Barry's two and a half. He's, he's a gem, man. That's awesome. Just, just tractors, dirt. <laughs> excavators deer hunting hanging out in the garage that's awesome man you're gonna have to you're gonna have to buy like a you know well of course you guys got the family farm but you're gonna have to buy some land to add onto there because you're gonna have all this help from uh from your kids someday you know you're gonna be able to put them out there in a tractor and yeah (laughs) cutting trees cutting lanes putting up stands it's gonna be you guys are going to have uh, have quite the workforce out there. But, man, it's so good to catch up. But we were just uh, talking about getting our kids into hunting and, you know, the different philosophies for how that's done. You know, some some people, they basically let the, their kids hit the ground <laughs> running, I guess, and they, you know, put them on a giant buck right away. And uh, I think we've talked about before on this podcast – you know, people can do what they want, but I think there's some risk in that. You know, I think, uh, uh, when you kind of earn your way in or work your way in, um, you're more likely to stick around with it longer. Um, whereas if you like, Oh, I killed my big buck. I guess I can go on to the next thing, you know, then I think that can happen sometimes, but uh, you know, then there's a, 
course the people that no matter what they're just going to be a they're going to be a hunter someday so we're talking about that which led to uh this discussion um cole can you kind of explain what you saw your son doing with his bb gun that uh made you uh kind of think you got you got some extra work you got to do yeah so i was just talking about how nash was like we were we were shooting we were shooting and then he was shooting his bb gun and i noticed that he was he was leaning over the stock because he's right-handed so he's leaning over the stock and shooting with his left eye so i tried to get him to close his left eye right and use mm-hmm. his right eye thing and i was like you know what i and we had tried a couple other times before. I mean, I bet you I tried when he was five years old. Wow. To teach him how, you know, which the eye was dominant. But yeah. you're trying to get your your five-year-old to do yep, the eye yep, yep. with your hand and trying to figure out what they are interpreting as <laughs> the object was still there and everything. So I was like, ah, just leave it alone. Yeah. Now he's he's eight now, so I'm like, all right, well, so we got the 22 out. Same thing. He's leaning over the stock right-handed, and I was like, all right. So we did the diamond thing. He wasn't totally getting it. And I was like, all right, let's put put your finger out. And put. We were shooting at a pumpkin. I was like, mm-hmm. put your finger on the pumpkin. Now close your left eye. Now close your right eye. And I was like, did the pumpkin stay with your left eye or your right eye? And he says, well, when I close my left eye, it moves. I said, okay, well, your left eye dominant. Yep. Because we got we got to completely redo this. Like, yep. got to start over, buddy. And he yep. wasn't super pumped about it, you know. Yep. But we, and I was shooting a twenty-two with a scope, so it wasn't didn't matter a whole lot mm-hmm. if you go over the stock. But we, he couldn't. He well, he hit the pumpkin like one time shooting right-handed, but then when he when he switched to left-handed which I had to, you know, he's used to holding the gun yep. right hand. And I was like, man, this is going to be a nightmare. Yeah. But he on pretty quick. So we switched to left-handed and he shot the pumpkin like three out of four times. I was like, all right, now, now he understands. So now we're going to move on. It's yep. going to be, it's going to be weird for me. Yep. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm right-handed. Yeah. My brother's right hand. Actually, I think my brother shoots with both eyes open. Oh, really? Unless he's looking through a scope. I think that's but, actually, I mean, you hear about that all the time with archery. You're supposed to shoot with with both eyes open. I've done some of that. But um, I'm like Nash. I'm left eye dominant, and I am right-handed. And um, I was listening to... I was listening to an episode of Wired to Hunt, and he was interviewing Terry Drury, um, and he talked about the fact that he was right-handed and left-eye dominant. And he said, "I, at you know, at this point in my life, I can't switch. I can't, you know, like I've done everything, you know, for however old Terry Drury is. I think he's in his late fifties, early sixties, something like that." And he's like, I've, I've uh, been doing this, you know, we'll say for 60 years and, you know, I've been throwing footballs like this. I've been throwing baseballs and shooting basketballs and, and, uh, you know, shooting my bow like this. So 
he's like, I have to shoot right-handed with my non-dominant eye, I, uh, you know, looking through my peep. And um, he's like, I ha- because of that, I have to train so much more to be accurate. And I probably will never be as accurate as somebody who's right-handed and right-eye dominant. And, um, I was really, that actually was kind of nice to like hear him say that because I, I've sensed that with myself, like I can be accurate enough to, to get a, a kill shot, but like when I'm in the yard, you know, maybe practicing with somebody else, sometimes I feel like, man, I just can't stack my arrows like I'd like to, you know, my, my group can't be as, as tight as I'd like. And I think part of that is just. I'm using my non-dominant eye when I'm hunting. So I think it's really good that you're training him. You're like, you're setting him up for more success. I think by having him probably be a little bit harder when we get to a bow for sure. But yeah, I think so. Same way. And then I think I can't remember if my brother's, my brother's little boy that just started hunting this year, he's left-handed. I want to say he shoots right. I okay. might be wrong. I might shoot left, but either way, but I, I always tried to get like, I thought Nash was like ambidextrous from the beginning because yeah. they say, if you like roll the way I always did it, they say, if you just roll a ball to a kid and tell them to throw it to you when they're like four or five years old, they'll instinctively throw it with their dominant hand. Mm. And I, Tell you what, I could not get that kid to throw me <laughs> ten balls with the same arm. Yeah. I was confused for like two years. I didn't know which way he was. Yeah, but now he, and now I got the same thing with my 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 one boy, Ken, and he's he's right-handed. Like, there's no doubt about it. He's yeah. probably like me. I can't do nothing with my left hand. Yeah. Other than unless I got a baseball mitt on it, but that's it. Yeah, yeah. But my two-year-old, same way. He'll throw a ball <laughs> ten different ways, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Make yep. it easy for him a little bit. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's good if a kid could be ambidextrous, especially for sports, you know? If you could, uh, if you could uh, uh, like, pitch with both hands or uh, – you know, of course, uh, switch hitting in baseball, um, you know, or like, or like Patrick, Patrick Mahomes, you know, when someone's like hanging on his right side, he just like shifts the ball over to his left hand and completes a pass, you know, that's just, uh, but, but yeah, I think you're right though with archery, but also, you know, a, a very real thing, um, when kids are developing, they have what's called more neuroplasticity where they can learn things easier that's why um like bilingual schools will uh you know do that in grade school start teaching kids another language in grade school so that way they can you know just master it so much faster than when they're an adult and they want to try and do it you know so i think it's smart man i think that's i think that's good i need to pay attention to see if jonas is i think he's left eye dominant and he's left-handed um which that's going to make things interesting when he wants to borrow my uh, my guns and stuff to go hunting someday. Five round. Yeah, yeah. That's what my dad always did growing up because he's left-handed, 
and then well he shoots left-handed mm-hmm. and then brother right-handed so he always bought brownings because they're bottom of jack yeah okay yep so it didn't matter who who carried it he only has i think to this day he only has like i mean my dad's got like 250 guns or something i mean <laughs> and he's like a collector but i think yeah. he only has like three actual left-handed guns wow two of them were given to him wow. because he was left-handed yeah and they, yeah that's a good little tip left-handed gun and that was uh it was an 1187 okay that's it yeah that, that's a good little tip there but but yeah so it, it i mean it's all just interesting stuff to, to talk about and how the brain works and and uh there's advantages to everything but uh in that case you know you you really want to get it right set your kids up for for future success and and uh I think it's good that you're doing that, man. But what else has been going on? You're in the new house now. You uh, worked yourself to death nearly getting that thing built and finished off. Um, I think you've. Uh, right. What did you say? I said that's all right. That's just that's fun stuff to me. Yeah, yeah, it's another hobby, I'm sure. But but are you guys loving the new house? Is it is it everything oh, yeah. you wanted? That's good. Yep, starting work, starting to work on the barn. Still got half my deer heads in my grandma's basement yep do you got tommy at home oh yeah tommy's at home that's he's good. in the living room. that's good that's good he's the only one allowed inside yep that's good uh i remember i went to i went to old barn cole by the way so old barn is a sponsor of this podcast cole takes all of his deer to old barn and uh he even uh helped he even recommended to me when i wanted to get a hide tanned he said just take it to old barn they'll take care of you there um and they did and i actually just used that hide uh while we were camping during our uh, nebraska mule deer hunt i think it's so nice to put down under your sleeping bag you know i figure if those deer can lay in you know like 20 below zero and in a snow drift and it keeps them warm it do okay for me so i uh, use that and i i'm taking my uh yeah, yeah, I shot we we were only allowed to shoot mule deer does on this this uh ranch that we got permission to hunt on which killed us cuz we could have killed two nice bucks. Um it was that was my first time seeing the second rut. I've never witnessed the second rut. I think it's because in Iowa, well, I generally don't hunt the regular gun seasons in Iowa. I've done it a few times, but I, I prefer either early muzzleloader or late muzzleloader season and uh so maybe that's part of the reason i'm just not out in the woods then but um i think it's also because the deer are kind of underground here during you know like i'm sure there's still a second rut that happens but it's probably mostly nocturnal just because the you know the orange army's pushing through every draw and and patch of timber and so when we were out in nebraska though man every buck whitetail and mule deer they were they were in on the rut second rut man and it was it was kind of like it my friend Caleb who went with me he's like it's like you're watching the rut but but it's like toned down you know like like the bucks Whoa. aren't chasing so hard they're not well, there you know, ain't no more competition that's why i mean yeah. it has a lot to do with like 
your dough density for mm. sure. Like if you have a lot of does, mm-hmm. you have a lot of ones. Like, I mean, we see a lot here at our place because we have, we have like a natural wintering spot and we have yeah. a lot of food. We have a lot of does and it is, it's crazy though. It is, I shot, I shot one great big deer that I shot in January, like 165 incher. And that was long time ago when there wasn't a lot of 165 inches yeah. getting killed, but that, that deer was on a doe. I mean, yeah. he was like, he was like 160 pounds field dress. Wow. Just, just run ragged. But they just, I mean, I've seen it coyote hunting in January. I mean, you're like, what in the world is going on over there? Nope. There's a giant with, a 90 pound doe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was was so interesting to see. Yeah. And there's the thing is like uh, the pecking order is already established. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. There, there was like no fighting. No, they don't. Everybody knows those last does are getting bred by this guy. And that's it. Yeah. And that's typically what, we get every once in a while, we'll just get, we'll just get a giant that shows up out of nowhere. Mm. It's just cause he made the climb and found all the does that still ain't bred, you know? That, yeah. He's just out still at though right now. We're in like that desperation phase where fucks are just desperately seeking out the last few does that are in heat. Hmm. Do you feel like right now is a good time to to get on a on a nice buck? I wish we had about thirty degree cooler temperatures. <laughs> yeah, man, is this? Do you ever remember such a warm deer season? Yeah, I mean, I was gonna get into that. I mean, I this is probably the. I mean, from everything like just sightings, cameras. And just activity. This is probably one of the slowest years I've had. It's been a really tough year for me. Like, mm. I don't know. I'll bet you I haven't had a deer over 150 inches on camera. And I couldn't even tell you how long. I mean. I Man, been- that is so consistent with what I've been hearing all throughout Iowa. Um uh, Noel Gandy, Noel Gandy, Noel Gandy, the guy I was just telling you about, who he he um, hunts a very similar way to you. He keeps tabs on. He identifies who the deer are, waits for a certain age class before he goes in to, to harvest. And he, like, rattled off five or six deer that he has on his properties. And he said, this year, those bucks either did not grow – like their antler growth was what stagnated or they even regressed in, in size. And he, he attributes it to, this is the third year of hard drought down in his part drought. of it. Yeah. Drought, the big thing. So you feel drought like year. you, you feel like that's why your, your yeah. big buck sightings are down. Drought, drought is a big, like we always, I was, I don't remember if I was talking to my brother or somebody else, but, like when we have a drought, that's typically a pretty off year for me. I mean, mm. it's 
and their growth is worse for sure. Sure. I mean, it's, we are so close to the river mm-hmm. that if, I mean, the Rock River, they can, when it's low, like it is now, and they just walk across it. Yeah, so that's crazy. All that, all that habitat that is usually not accessible when there's a really hard drought like we had, mm-hmm. that, that just opened up thousands of acres for, so where normally we had four or five deer over four and a half or over five and a half usually mm-hmm. that's down to one or two just because they're expanding out into that habitat that's now yeah. accessible yeah. that's interesting i've never heard that point that's a great point yeah that's a that's a that's a really good point how about ehd have you guys had any ehd yeah, on your farm ever. this year i don't think we ever will just because you have so much you have the river well, we just don't, we don't have any stagnant water. Like mm-hmm. all we have, we got like two pretty good size ravines that have, you know, a pretty consistent running creek in them. Mm-hmm. There's like, one of them is dried up right now, but the other one pretty much holds water all the time. Yeah. But, and that's always running water. Mm-hmm. And then we got the river. So, I mean, most of the deer are drinking out of those creeks or the river or sure. little potholes here and there which mm-hmm. are this year so that's the other thing is when it gets dry they kind of they stay tight to that river yeah and it's extremely hard to hunt down in there because it's just it's hard to access for me i got a long long walk to get to the river yeah yeah I need yeah that's e-bike or something yeah, right. It's it's crazy how it's crazy how these warmer te- this warmer deer season has changed so many things. Um I was talking with uh, my friend Caleb, which I can't remember if you met him or not. I think you did a I think you might have done a podcast with Caleb on here too. But um we were talking today just about how so I mean, here we are. It's December 6th. It was basically 60 degrees today. Um, tomorrow is supposed to be roughly the same weather. Then we have a little drop going into early next week. I mean, still all above freezing. And then um, by the end of next week, so a week from now, it's going to be back in the 50s again. You know, a week before Christmas, and it's it's still in the 50s. You know, yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's different. You know, that's not something we're really used to. And... Nope. And, um, we were talking about, well, you know, that's going to make things crazy for shed season. You know, usually you can count on those properties where the deer, because of the cold, because of the snow, they, you know, they're competing for this limited resource. So they all pile into where that limited resource is. And that's where you find the pile of sheds. But if things stay so warm, thermal cover is not nearly the, priority that that yeah. uh it makes yeah. it harder but uh at the end of the day they still like the thing is those bucks gotta they gotta recoup all yeah that's all true that, that they lost so it and you're right i mean when it's i mean when it's crazy cold they stack in our place here at home and because mm-hmm. it's there are so many big deep ravines and south facing hillsides like 
they want that thermal cover but Mm -hmm. and it when it's warm it sucks because you're walking miles and miles to try to find anything yeah but they for as far as hunting goes though like they they still gotta get those calories like those bucks are still gonna be pretty soon i i would say this week they're they're gonna become pretty food dependent okay that yeah that's 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 good intel so so right now you what I mean, based on what we were just talking about with the second rut, um, I heard somebody make a good point today on uh, the Exodus podcast um, with uh, Jake Hofer. I don't know if you've ever listened to that. It's a great show. Um, They said that they love hunting timber draws during peak rut. You know, during, they said, November 7th through 14th, they love hunting timber draws just because there's so many bucks that, you know, are walking by. Yeah. Would, would you almost treat this time as we wrap, you know, like this desperately seeking phase of, of, you know, the end of the primary rut and going into the second rut, would you want to be in a high travel corridor right now? Or would you already be heading to food? I'm heading to food. Okay. I'm a big draw hunter. I just, I've, I've done it a lot. Mm-hmm have so many deep draws and i mean i've tried it all but and i i got a couple spots that are you know i can see into these big draws and i will hunt them once in a while but i just think the thermals your scent control is just so poor Mm. that it's it's really difficult to to get in there and have a successful hunt and not put pressure on deer i just i actually just for the first time this year found out a way to hunt one of a a piece that i've never been successful i mean i've had stands in the bottom of the draw i've had them Hmm. on the side hill and that's the other thing is if if you're trying to hunt draws it's it gets difficult you get some really funky shot angles you get yeah, um, deer get in there and walk halfway up a side hill, or they're in the bottom and they're halfway up the hill, and pretty soon you got a forty foot angle. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I just I I and kudos to the guys that can do it. I mean, I seen like Jay Gregory posting daily videos, and he's sitting in this massive draw, and it's like, man, I <laughs> I I've tried that, and I I can't do it. So yeah, that's a good point that that angle of i've definitely seen that you're in your tree stand and like off the one side you feel like you're barely in up the tree because of the the angle yeah. but then on the other side you're like oh if i fall i'm i'm gonna wake up in china uh, yeah just man you get on our farm man you get deer coming from every different direction most of the time so it's like man i gotta make sure my wind's good everywhere yeah and I mean, you do things to help, like, I mean, I got the tent crusher bag, and I mm-hmm. I use those Onyx. I love that thing. I think it makes a that's world a, of difference. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. That, you know, there, it's like that was, that hit a little, actually, when I started this podcast is when that was kind of still 
uh, widely used thing. And now I just see a few guys still using it, but I've heard that from the guys that use it, it's like they have actual, you know, examples where they've seen it work. Um, Jeremiah Haas, who I think you know, uh, I think he's a mutual friend of ours. Um, he's big on using those. Um, and he tells a story about how uh, he had a coyote come like right up to him while he was running one because it just couldn't smell him, you know. And, uh, you know, it's I think the, the proof is there. I treat my stuff with uh, with a scent crusher. Um, it, it's technically a for like a whole room uh, cleaner, but. Uh, I just stick it in my tub with, uh, my hunting gear after I hunt and just, just run it inside the, my gear tub. Yeah. And I think that really helps. Yeah. But, I, I won't hunt without my Ozonics anymore. Like I, I'm still running like the original. The one hanging up in the tree. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm running the original HR 300 or whatever it is. Like they got like. <laughs> four models after it now yeah. but and i'll tell you what that like i had one problem when i first bought it and just call customer support and it's just one guy answering the phone like that's they're that's good great to deal with i i would uh i would advocate for ozonics for sure yeah well definitely if you're going to be hunting one of those timber draws it sounds like would be be real handy for that but okay so you know, let's talk a little bit about your guys' property. Um, what has it always been? Uh, so, well, let me maybe pitch it this way. So, I'm looking at hopefully in the next five years buying a piece of ground that I can start, um, you know, working on turning into a, a, you know, a honey hole basically, right? And, um, I'm looking for specific things. You know me, I'm a shed head. I'm a hopeless shed addict. Um, but so I'm looking for a piece that's going to have the South facing hillsides. It's going to have, you know, yeah. big timber with, with, uh, some, with some, uh, um, some ground that you can put into crops or food plot, you know, so, and then of course, uh, I work in the prairie restoration business, so I want to put down a lot of, a lot of prairie or CRP acres, you know, and when you know, when you look at your guy's farm, is it, I mean, is your, you're a thoughtful guy, so I'm sure you've considered this before. Have you thought, man, I sure am fortunate that, you know, dad, or grandpa, whoever first bought the ground, bought this place that had all these things that money can't buy, you know, like the terrain features. Or do you feel that regardless of those terrain features, because I know you guys have done a ton of work there on your on your farm to make it a good deer farm, um, do you feel that you, – regardless of those terrain features because of the all the habitat improvement that you guys have done it would be just you know just as good i don't think it like there's no way it would be just as good if we haven't hadn't have done i mean but there's a little bit of both like they uh i mean 
it it starts. What are you doing? <laughs> it's fine. You don't have to go under the camera. <laughs> Hi, Ariel. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a little bit of both. Like it, I am totally grateful for sure. But like the farm had all the things that it needed to have from the beginning. Yeah. And like my yep. grandpa was, he he was that guy that just we put him in the. I mean, as far as I could ever remember, he was always in the best spot on the farm. And you could count on the first shot of first season <laughs> was going to be grandpa because he he's laying down the first doe that walks by. And yep. if there's six pointer behind it, that that one's dying, too. Yep. But in the winter, when it was bitter cold, you know, he's feeding cows and he's mixing up grain and throwing out a couple bales in four or five spots for the deer, too, because he just mm. he like. You know, he's just a, he's just a good person. You know, he just enjoyed wildlife and he liked seeing the deer, Mm -hmm. but he, he was also on board with everything that my dad was trying to do with CRP. So he, he definitely helped with that, but yeah, Mm -hmm. my dad definitely took it to like a whole different level. I mean, my dad was on like the first enrollments you know yeah like yeah late 80s yeah i mean Mm -hmm. he i think the first piece yeah probably like probably like early early 90s because i think my dad bought the farm just after i was born okay so i've been like 89 90 91 something like that that's very early in the program that's back when they called them lay aside acres yeah or set aside yep. acres, whichever. Yeah, whichever I think some of his first contracts were like ninety some bucks an acre. Like, yeah. Yep. You know those those are the guys that are the pioneers of this stuff, and my dad was definitely there. And like, so now the the income that he's generating from that is, in, in my opinion, is is uh is paid forward. Like he he. Sh- those are the people that should be getting the 295 bucks an acre or the 300. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause, cause yeah, just think what it would be. Think what the wildlife scene would be if CRP never came along. I mean, things were, things had gotten really bad for habitat, uh, here in the Midwest. Um, you know, I think there were things that helped like that, like back in, let's say back in the fifties, everyone was still doing a four crop rotation, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, and and that helps. <clears throat> I don't know how much it helped deer because deer need cover. And yeah, they, it's nice having alfalfa going into the winter. It's nice having, um, even oats, you know, that, that, that's kind of a nice variety uh, thing with a little bit more protein than uh, just corn, but um, the the cover aspect was gone. You know, like you, if you go back and look at, <coughs> excuse me, look at some of those historical. You know, they used to always have like some guy would fly through the whole area and go over every section and take pictures of everybody's farm. They'd show up at your door. Hey, I got a picture of your farm from the airplane. You want to pay me a hundred bucks for it? Like you can, you can look back at like every farm has some of those pictures and they're so interesting to go back and look at. Cause you can see how the, how the landscape has changed. 
And obviously we're now primarily on a two crop rotation. Some guys are still a three crop, you know, they, they'll do a good field of alfalfa or something like that. But, um, then, you know, when you look, when you look back at that time, farming was going all the way up to the Creek, you know, the, the timber was probably grazed pretty heavily by cattle and, and hogs. You know, they would, people would, would free range their stuff through there. And, um, so it was like a give and take. And then, you know, you get to like the eighties. Well, now you have confinement, livestock operations, feed lots, stuff like that. So you're starting to pull the livestock back. You don't have as much hay ground. Nobody has horses anymore. So nobody has oats anymore. But CRP came around, you know, like just in time so that even though we were losing diversity on the landscape, we were gaining actual quality habitat, you know, and those, those creek beds that were farmed right up to, um, they were, you know, now protected and had some, had some, uh, good habitat along there. So it's been like, it's been an interesting thing, but I oftentimes think if, if CRP never came around, um, I don't know what we'd be looking at for deer right now. And especially don't know what we'd be looking at for like quail and pheasants. Um, and, and turkeys too. The program failed to, I, I think that they dropped the ball on was fence lines. I, yeah. I, I really think they should have created, I mean, you had all that, you had everything yeah. there, you know, you got all those buffers and, you yeah. know, filter strips and all this kind of stuff for programs. But yeah, they, I, I there was nothing to save the fence lines and yeah. that's inevitably what everybody has done now is, so, I mean, we on our that is one thing that even my old man is like, ah, man, I just wish we had, wish we had some more quail or some more pheasants. Or, yeah. But the problem is, is that that's the quail and pheasant habitat. Yeah. Is those, where they can get in thick cover and then they can get out and run. Yeah. That's, that's the habitat they live in. Yeah. I really wish that even, even now it's not too late. Like right. to just you know, introduce yeah, there's some, still some places. Yeah. Well, and hedgerows too, you know, you think of those hedgerows that, that yeah, once like, existed. If, and, if they, they had like some sort of like screen or fence row program. I know my dad would do it. Like we would, yeah. we would, we would put them. Hell, I think when dad bought the farm, we took out fence and I took out fence with my brothers. And then we tore out the, Two hedgerows, well, and they were—they were timber rows at that point. Mm-hmm. Tore those out, made all one big field. But I bet you, if if there was a program that paid, you know, two hundred fifty, three hundred bucks an acre, I mean, my my dad would put it back in. Yeah, that's a great idea. I like that. I've never heard anybody suggest that before, but I think that's a great idea. Just call it the fence. Yeah, just call it CRP fence row or something like that. You know, um, it, there's all kinds of different spinoffs of crp or other parallel programs i mean we could you know certainly come up with something like that i love that idea and maybe even uh like you said for the the, reward the folks that you know either have been doing it the longest or 
have always been doing it, you know, go around and say, oh, you know, you guys still have your hedgerows in place. You guys still have your fence rows in place. You get, you know, top compensation for having that for so many years and, and not getting rid of it, you know. See, maybe I mean, some things will change now that I I think it changed hands, right? So like no longer governed by what is it? No longer governed by the FSA and now it's NRCS or is it the other way around? Cause, no, yeah, FSA is still in charge of it. Right now, CRP is is interesting because it's pretty much dead right now, unfortunately. I mean, people are still getting their payments. But in new enrollment, because we don't have a, a federal budget that's been passed, uh, new enrollment is, like, stopped right now. Um, yeah, we got great. can't even get in right now. Yep, that's exactly why. they can't They can't enroll anybody. And that's kind of scary to think about because, um, thankfully, you know, EHD hasn't been a problem on your farm. It hasn't been a problem on my farm, but it has been a huge problem in Iowa this year. Um, there's a guy. Dry dry air, man. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a guy in the, yep. Uh, Caleb and I, we went hunting back in October Want to check out this little oxbow that looked like is our first time hunting the farm, and uh, we were just trying to figure out where are the deer at. And we walk onto this oxbow, and man, there's six dead deer, and one, you know, one mature buck, and and then uh, I heard that in the neighboring county, there is a person who owns 1,200 acres, found 300 dead deer on his 1,200 acres. Um, you know, you're talking, you're talking some, some population level effects with numbers like that, you know, and then if you have these years where we can't get people to enroll into CRP, now you have a habitat loss problem. Um, you know, it doesn't, it it didn't take much to screw things up a hundred years ago and it won't take much now. I'm afraid if, if, uh, you know, we don't make good decisions. I think that's, I think, uh, you know, getting a new farm bill passed, opening up some more enrollment and, uh, even finding ways to, I mean, there, there's a lot of federal money that's passed on to farmers right now. That doesn't really help the farmer much. It doesn't help as in doesn't really help their, their land value much. Um, but, you know, we could restructure that to say, Hey, you can still have this money, but we want to tie it to X, Y, and Z. Um, so that you have better soil quality, better water quality, better air quality, but also better, you know, wildlife habitat on your, on your place. You know, I think there's ways we could do that. And I love that idea of the fence row idea. I, 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 I know some, uh, I know some people that uh, might be able to talk to some other people and share your idea. I'm going to pass that on for sure. Um, call it the Cole Young Act. <laughs> yep, call it the Cole Young Act. I love it. Love it, man. But well, my farm down south is it's still. I mean, it's recovered mostly, but it's still pretty. 
right there after I shot Tommy that next spring, I think I found like, I think I found like 11 deadheads or something like that. And I mean, it's just, it's just now coming out of it. I had, I had a tough season, but I had an encounter with a giant down there, but I, and I still got him on camera. So we'll see. Hopefully, I I don't know. I could, I can make a move on that deer, but he's, he's tough. He's, we can get into that though. I mean, yeah, let's talk about him. How's he compared to Tommy? He's bigger frame. Oh my God. He's an eight point. Oh my goodness, man. He's an eight pointer, but he's a bigger frame. Yeah. He's probably 170 inch eight. I just did. I had him at 80 yards and I did some, did some quick calculations and I came up with 171 or something like that or 172. Oh, I think man. I'm a little light on Fred too because I got some more pictures of him. I'm like, ooh, I think he's he's over 20 wide. You think but, you think uh, you're gonna be able to get back down there? Yeah. So I kind of, I like you were saying earlier that we really only had that one. In my opinion, we had that one really good cold front, and that was like end of October. Yep. That's when almost all the really big deer were killed. And I was actually up here hunting our home farm because I had, I usually do that. I, I hunt, I hunt the end of October up here and then I try to dedicate like the first 10 days or so to my farm down south to mm-hmm. bow hunt. I'm like, well, and my, when I was, here on the home farm i seen i had this deer freaking plagued me i i i had very little it's been a rough year i had a i didn't have very many pictures of like big deer or like you know the caliber of deer that i'm usually after like i had i got one deer that was probably close to 170 hmm. and he was I mean, extremely regular up until October 10th, and then he was gone. Man. And then just started seeing this buck that just had all these wild points and super big mass, but he's like 15 inches wide, and he's clearly over six and a half, like just. Yeah, just an old buck. and I just started seeing him everywhere and I'm like, we got a problem. Like yeah. I gotta, this thing's gotta die soon or I'm not, I'm not going to see anything decent. Yep. yep. But I get in first set. Here he comes at like 70 yards. So then I get, I get back in that stand the next day and I think I seen him, I didn't see him that morning, but I seen him that afternoon. I had him at like 60, then I had him at like 55, and I mean, he's just all over me. Yeah. So then I get back in the stand that next morning, here he comes by at like 60 yards, and he kind of angles up the hill, and I ranged him, and it was like 44. And so I dial my sight, get him, stop him, stops right behind a whole bunch of brush. I'm like, God. Oh. So then by then he picks up, you know, he starts walking back and it's like 40, 
six yards. I'm like, I, I can't. I'm not doing that. Not on yeah. a steady walk. So he gets out of there. Then I get back in the stand like two days later. Here he comes again. I mean, I'm in, I'm in it. Yeah, in, man. In his spot for sure. I just yeah. cannot close the deal. And my buddy was like, I kept, I kept texting him. I'm like, yeah, seen that old one again. And he's like, it's, this is getting personal. I'm like, oh, it's, it's path personal. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's time so, to go. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's still, in the, I mean, even up till then, like, I got nothing else, like nothing on camera. It's probably been the slowest year that I've ever had for mature deer on camera. Like, yeah, it's non-existent almost. Mm-hmm. But then, honestly, the only other, well, then, so then after that, I kind of backed off a little bit and I go down to my farm down south. And I get in there first day. I mean, it's slow, but there's quite a bit of activity, but not nothing, not overly good conditions. I mean, it was a little bit warmer. And yeah. I, I get in there the second day, and here comes, I can hear barking, and I get three dogs on that farm. And I mean, they are running deer all over i mean to the point where they got to be close to a mile away and i can still hear them barking they're running deer everywhere well pretty soon they're they run these they run a small buck by me and then a decent deer stays out like 80 yards when i look over and here's this mammoth of an eight point and i'm like holy smokes and he just goes to like 80 yards and then he just kind of slowly goes back down into the creek when well, these dogs chase and I don't know if they chase him or another deer, but they had a deer pinned down in the creek for like, I'm not joking, like an hour. Oh, man. I was to the point where I was almost going to get down from the stand and go see what they were barking at. But man, I'll test my luck against a, one dog or two, but. I don't know. At, at three dogs that yeah. I'm not so sure about, I don't know if I don't know if I can fight that battle. If they're yeah. fight me, you know. I know it. Yeah, they get so, nasty. You know, when they when they group up like that, they kind of get that pack mentality, and yeah, you got to be careful with stuff like that. I don't. I mean, the, so I. That's interesting. You bring that. I heard on Dan Johnson's podcast. Uh, the Nine Finger Chronicles. I heard him talking about that, that he had a farm that he had permission on that um, his cameras dried up because so often the neighbor's dogs were just tearing through the farm and running all the deer off. And he talked about, he's like, I was looking up the laws on, you know, like, you know, shooting a, a stray dog and stuff like that. And, and uh, he's all like, yeah, he he was like, I just knew that my daughter would never let you know she would never look at me the same again if I did that. But you know, if I had if I had you know like an uncollared dog problem, um, I wouldn't be above that. You know what I mean? It's like 
they're, they're they're not part of the ecosystem and they're they're dangerous i mean obviously you try and figure out okay is this somebody is this somebody's dog is this just you know did it get loose or whatever but i mean after like weeks of the same dogs running through and stuff like that that's a different situation you know um, yeah so, i mean so i'm down there and i <sighs> i have some connections down there that are close yeah and but i don't know the neighbors like i don't know them at all yeah and honestly to the to the east and to the west and to the north it's all outfitters like i mm. i don't know you know and it's one of those things where they lease it from a landowner and then they sublease it to yeah you know and it's just like i i'm not gonna try to figure this out so you just stay over there and i'll stay over here but i i do know the neighbor right across the way and i just he he happened to be pulling out the next day and i was like hey you don't happen to have some dogs do you and he goes yep i got two big white dogs and i was like well they ain't yours because these were two big black labs and some sort of healer and i said i because i'm i'm a dog person i mean i got yeah. three dogs yep. three short hairs and i've had puppies and i mean it's not that i could have shot them anyways i mean these suckers were running mock one yeah but i told him i said you know if you know whose dogs these are just tell them i'm not gonna shoot them but somebody's gonna shoot them. yeah so yeah. if they want if they like their dogs they better keep them he's like i keep my dogs on a leash or on a lead from basically october 1st till you know deer season's over and i was like well yeah. you're a good dog owner then right yeah but yeah, man, yeah. It, it really screwed up my farm down there for a while because that was the second day, and I mean, I it was pretty much I, that that fourth day that I was down there. I I did see a couple decent bucks, but um, I, I could tell like that eight pointer when I seen him. I mean, his mouth was open, his tongue's hanging out. Like they had been chasing that deer. Yeah, yeah, the deer's gonna die. Wow. Like it, I was actually like, I was to the point where I was almost about ready to get down from the sand. See, they had that deer yeah, down in the creek. And then I'm like, you know, I actually called my dad. I'm like, man, I've never heard dogs bark like this. And he's like, I can hear him through the phone. He's like, man, he, they called me back. He's like, maybe, maybe they got that big one pinned down there. I mean, you can go down there and try to get a shot. I'm like, I just don't feel right about that. Yeah. Like, right. I mean, that's a 170 inch eight. Like that's a world-class deer, you know? I, yeah. And it wouldn't I, be illegal. It wouldn't be illegal to do so because they're not your no. pets. They're not your, it's not like you brought the dogs in there to do that. And I think that's the other thing too, is are you dealing with somebody's pets or are you dealing with just wild dogs? You know, like for instance, my grandparents. Oh, those dogs have done it before, many and many a time. I yeah. can tell. Yeah, they they probably don't really belong to anybody. You know, they're just and what a damage that can be on the, you know, on the local deer herd and and tur I mean other things too, turkeys, uh, waterfowl, uh, pheasants. You know, they can really they can really put yeah. a hurt in. I said that I was like, 
well, when I told him that, he's like, well, maybe you just go down there and get an arrow one dogs. I was like, yeah. well, I could probably shoot one of them. I said, but what are the other two going to do? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> but how do you feel about that? I'm like, I got a knife. So I don't think I can knock another one in time. But yeah. Anyways, right. that that was basically my time down there this year. And I, I don't like to pressure that farm. And it, if I don't have something down there that really, really, I mean, piques my interest, I just think it's better to, I, I think the best deer habitat is just no pressure. I, yeah. I, I mean, that's, you can plant whatever food you want. You can do mm. whatever habitat improvement you want. And yes, will it improve your deer numbers? Yes. But at the end of the day, pressure is really what affects deer. Yeah. Like, that's why I shot Tommy. Yeah. Because nobody had been around there. He yeah. just been walking around there during the day. And that was normal to him. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even when I did shoot that deer, I was, I was within a hundred yards of him. Yeah. Slamming the truck door. And actually I was packing in with the stand. Yeah. And I seen him chasing a doe. I was like, Oh, well, I guess that's where I need to hunt. Yeah. Right I remember that part of the story. Yeah. Well, I, I've noticed that too, you know, so on my home farm here, the deer respond to pressure a lot. They're a lot more sensitive to pressure than on my family's other farm that's on the other part of the state. You can just see it and how the deer respond to, to humans, you know, the presence of humans. Uh, here, they are very quick to get out of there. You know, if they sense any kind of negative pressure, any kind of danger from humans, they're they're out of here. Whereas on that other farm, it's a lot more remote, and there there's like a, a extra level of curiosity, you know. Yep. And and I also think that's true too when people talk about bucks, you know, being nocturnal. You know, Tommy's good. Tommy's kind of a good example of that, where it's like. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, there's exceptions to everything, but, but, you know, when, when bucks can be, when people can have a hard time getting their bucks to daylight, um, it might be just, it's a pressure thing and it might not even be from them on their farm. It could be from the neighboring farms, you know, those deer just in that area learn to, you know, take care of all their activity after dark and, get back to bed early you know it's wild when you see how deer act where there is no pressure it's you, you learn a lot of different stuff like when i first started hunting that farm down there that hadn't been hunted in yeah 10 15 years it's like deer just like to move at 9 a.m you know yeah it's yeah. just what were there times Yes, where there, it was all nocturnal still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But more often than not, there was, like, I could see, it was kind of nice to see the difference because I'd run cameras up here 
and I'd run cameras down there and mm-hmm. I wouldn't get any pictures up here. Nothing other than yeah. nighttime. And then down there, they'd be moving during the day all day. Yep. It's it's wild to see what what's yeah, really interesting. Uh, I mean, that's to everybody out and I know it's it's you want to go out there and hunt, right? Yeah, oh yeah. It's it's a it's a tough line to tiptoe, you know. Yep. You got to get when it's right, but at the same time, like I always say just like calculated risk, you know. Mm-hmm. You got you got to know when when's a good time to jump in there and I I always just try to access and access is probably the biggest thing for me. Yeah. Like I don't like to scare deer. I think that that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Well, and they can, I mean, they learn, they learn stuff about you when you do. They, yeah. and yeah, if, you, if, if you're on a food plot and there's 30 deer in the field and you walk out of your stand and blow every deer out of there. Yeah. It, it, small bucks and does are going to put up with that. Yeah. That's, but mature deer aren't. No. They're going to sit back in the timber and wait. Or they're just going to be like, well, I know now that I'm going to browse in the timber by my bed until it gets dark. And then then I'm going to go start making right. my way towards the destination feed, you know? Yep. But, yeah. Yeah. Those are very good points. And, you know, a lot of it comes down to self discipline. Uh-huh. It's also would be a good time to advertise, uh, the presenting sponsor for the podcast, Spartan Forge, with the uh, deer behavior prediction, artificial intelligence prediction of uh, deer movement. Um, you know, if it's a full range day on Spartan Forge, that'd be a good day to go out and hunt. If it's a core area day, that doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't hunt. Um, but uh, I think for a lot of people, that does mean they shouldn't hunt. Because they're only going to be, they're only going to be, deer are only going to be um, moving if they absolutely feel compelled to. And if you're in there on a core area day, now you're just adding pressure on a day when they're not going to be, they're not going to yep. be moving. And and yep. uh, now, granted, some people know where a buck is bedding and a core area day is the day to go in and, and get them. But uh, for the most part, you know, we need those full range movement days to be out there. So prioritizing when you hunt, I think is, is critically important. Um, and just cutting down on, on that pressure. But also I think too, <clears throat> getting to know your neighbors a little bit, I think is good, you know, yeah. um, not just knowing their hunting habits, but like maybe like talking about like some goals, as fellow hunters, you know, like, Hey, you know, we all can have a better hunting experience if, you know, we try doing X, Y, and Z and there's a good chance you're not going to agree on X, Y, and Z, but if you can agree on why, you know, that's, that's progress, you know, it's like, everybody can agree on the, the product for sure. I mean, maybe not, but you know what I mean? Everybody wants to kill good deer right i mean yep. it's in their hunting career yeah it 
if you got four kids hunting on a farm, then yeah. Yeah, absolutely go whack whatever you want. I don't care. Yep. yep. You know, but if it's 30, 40, 50 year old guys hunting a farm and, you know, all they want is meat, maybe you can talk them into just shooting does or, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. you can talk the guy that shot 10, 140 inches into maybe going for 150 inches, you know, it, it's yeah. all, it just, it's baby steps for sure. And it's, yeah. but I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to kill the dominant buck. That's, I don't care how big he is. I don't care what he looks like. That's the deer I'm after. I don't, I'm after the monarch. Doesn't matter yeah. what he looks like. And this is a good example because this turd sandwich, it was the monarch. Oh, man. Is that this year's buck? <laughs> yeah, this is, that's what I was trying, that was what I was getting into is like he. <clears throat> man, what a, what a crazy thing. rack. Oh yeah, he's wild. That is cool. All those extra points on his uh those little stickers on his Oh yeah, he's got all sorts of neat little stuff on here. Yeah. What is that? Is G two there? That's yeah. Yeah, they will about five points coming off his G two. But I that's the deer that I had so many encounters with with Bo. And then I he had been on the farm and then went down to Macomb and I got back and I was like, all right, I'm going to go kill this sucker. And like the week before gun season, I went and I sat and uh, I seen tons of deer. I mean, I just had, I mean, just three and a half year olds, you know, I could have shot a really nice three year old, but this deer showed up on camera on the complete opposite side of the farm, like over a half a mile away you know yeah. and i'm like okay so i get i go and i pull set up the new stand i'm like all right he's gonna die right here let's get a picture of him he's on the opposite side of the farm uh. morning before so then i'm like man this sucker has got my number like yeah he's got to figure it out but then we got that we got that little cold front on first season yeah. Right. Right before first season, and uh, yeah, I was actually sitting on uh, on one of our food plots, and it was it was just the right kind of weather. And he just he come in with a doe, and I just looked over in the timber, and I seen I had a bunch of deer coming, and I look over, and I I identified him immediately. I'm like, oh my gosh, you get one foot out of that timber and I'm putting one in you. Well, <laughs> it's, he starts to, he, he was just with a doe. I, I don't know that he would even naturally showed up. You know, he was yep. just hugging a doe and I just happened to be in the right spot. Mm-hmm. But the doe gets out and I actually had a doe like 20 feet in front of the blind and she oh, is man. looking hard. She stomped a couple times, but this other doe won food plot, so she comes on the edge, and he he made a scrape in the timber, and then he starts dogging her behind. I only let him get about two steps out of the timber, and I already had the window down and the gun out the window, and I shot, and uh, my brother 
texted me. He's like, hey, is that you shooting? I was like, yeah, and I don't really know how to feel about it. Yeah. Because I, I shot, and I mean, I thought I, I mean, it was like 40 yards with a muzzle loader. Yeah. And I put it, he was quartering away, and I put it right behind his shoulder. I'm like, man, he should have been hurting. Yeah. Well, there was like no wind, so the smoke didn't really clear. So I just yep. seen kind of going off into the timber. And uh, I was like, yeah, I don't really know what to make of that. So I called my dad, and I'm like, I better, I got to get out, and I at least got to check for blood. Yeah. So, so I get out. I get going down the trailer. I mean, I went probably 20 to 30 yards with nothing. And I'm like, Ugh. I think I just clean missed him. So I go back to where I shot him. And then I was like, you know what? There's just, there's a little ridge, just 50 yards off the plot. I'll just take it to that ridge and see, you know, if he's down in that draw, I'll just leave it alone. So I get, I get back on his trail. And I mean, I went like 10 feet past where I had stopped before and I found blood. I'm like, Oh, thank God. Yeah. I don't know if I could have dealt with missing this deer, you know? Yeah. Yep. After all the encounters that I had with him, I'm like, yes. So, and then I went like 10 yards and I'm like, oh, there he is. He's laying, he only went like 60 yards. I just couldn't see him. Yeah, and just didn't have any blood clean. right away. Yeah, that's, that's the thing about muzzle loaders. You know, they just, for whatever reason, I don't get a ton of, ton of uh, blood on a lot of muzzle loader hits, you know. They I, just, and I, I have always shot a muzzle loader and it's, I couldn't tell you how many times it's unless you blow through that both lungs. If you get a pass through, like if you blow right through both lungs, yep, you're going to get a good blood trail. But if you, if you bury it in their shoulders at all, I mean, it's just, it's minute. And Mm. I mean, I gutted that deer. He was full. I mean, I may, I pinwheeled him. I shot him five inches behind the shoulder and buried it in his off shoulder. Like these things are crazy, man. Like that. Like he he ran 70 yards with three limbs and no heart. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. They're the toughest animals on the planet. They really are. But yep. I was just, I was, pump to be able to because it that's that was the dominant deer on our farm i mean he was we had a hundred and i don't know i probably had like 160 100 he was in there 160 170 mm-hmm. 10 pointer and he showed up just all of a sudden with only one side it was busted off like three inches up and that's then cool. i had the, nice deer that got bust and then i discovered this thing and i'm like now i know why like that that this deer was he's so compact and so massive that like there's nothing there's nothing yeah. gonna find him. Like, his body was huge too mm. and when i first seen him in october i guarantee you he was over 300 pounds on the hoof like oh, just man just, just built. true, true, true old buck. That's that's uh, been around for a long time, and 
and uh, able to assert himself early and get that re- respect from the other deer. But, man, that's awesome. I'm glad it all worked out. Glad you got him with the muzzy. That's fun. I like hunting with muzzle loaders. I just think they're, you know, I think a lot of people think they're the same thing as a rifle, but uh, not yeah. really. It's, you got to get it's it right. It's a whole different game. Yep. You got to get it right. Um, yep. my, my mule deer that I just shot, I missed, well, I hit her the first shot, but it wasn't a lethal hit. So I had to hit her again. And man, we were out there belly crawling across these, you know, giant ridges and hills and stuff and looking down over top of these ridges. So I had to reload that thing for my stomach. This is oh, yeah. That was horrible, man. <laughs> so hard not to just spill your powder all over the ground and everything, you know, just uh, dumping that down the barrel. And I shot, I think I did a podcast when I shot Randy. I mean, when I shot yeah. Randy, he, I shot him at like 115 yards and then he ran closer and yeah. I went to reload and I like dumped half my powder. So I did turn my gun over and dump the powder back yeah, out. That's right. Load. And then I ended up putting another one in him and I, drill them the second time but yeah you ain't doing that with a rifle you're just oh yeah, yep exactly yeah it's it's uh it's definitely a primitive weapon still but well man we should uh wrap this one up here but i want to uh get like cole young's two minute piece of advice for killing a deer like where you're setting up kind of weather conditions you're hunting if you had to kill a deer in the, if you want to kill a buck in the late season, how are you doing it? Late season. Um, so you're, you're getting tight to food and you got to realize that. A, so a lot of them deer, your, your bigger deer are probably not going to bed right on the food. Hmm. But the problem is, is if you're on a good food source, a lot of does and small bucks are. Okay. Like, I think that's a lot of things, a lot of times what people forget or just, you know, so people try to get, you know, hey, this buck, he's making it to the food plot at dark. I just need sure. to get back timber a couple hundred yards. Well, once you get back in the timber a couple hundred yards, you're bumping does that are bedded yeah five eighty yards off food plot but or whatever you're hunting an egg field whatever but i would say like the the best tool can be just just scout like find mm. a spot where you you know you can see them off the road or you can get up over a hill and sneak in when when it is real late right before dark or something like that yeah. find food that's where the big bucks are going to be because they have to recuperate all that mass that they have lost mm. yeah. or they're die. you know, it's, yep. it's literally survival at this point. So yeah. quit focusing on the does and start focusing on the food, find a spot where you can watch deer, then maybe move in. And then when you know where he's coming out, then they're way more easily patternable. Mm. If you get on a food source and you can watch that buck come out of the same spot one or two nights in a row, 
you better get a stand up and you better hunt it the next day because he's coming out the same spot the next night. Yeah. Bar something crazy happening, but cold temperatures and food. That's what I would. Yeah. That's great advice. Great advice. And people can put that, people can put that into, you know, put that to work right away. I'd say going into this part of the season. Um, so all hope's not lost. And, uh, Cole has been doing this for a long time. He's been killing mature bucks year after year. So uh, I put a lot of stock in his advice. I'd go back even and re-listen to that portion of the conversation just because those are some really good, quick hitter details that people can use and help them find success right away. So, well, thanks, Cole, so much for doing another podcast. And uh, thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Do remember the podcast is presented by Spartan Forge. Uh, Caleb and I, as you know, just got back from our mule deer hunt in Nebraska. We use Spartan Forge every day for hours each day, just going over, hey, where are we? Which coulee do we need to check yet? Which uh, high point do we want to get to for maybe some glassing? Where do we, um, you know, how how far are we from the truck? You know, Uh, all that stuff we did through Spartan Forge, of course. We talked also about the the deer behavior uh, prediction aspect that's done through artificial intelligence. They're ciphering through all this data to match what deer should be doing where you live. Um, It's an incredibly powerful tool. I strongly recommend everyone try it. You can download the free version and get the mapping, but I recommend you do the paid version, get all the deer behavior prediction and uh, get some other additional mapping resources as well. And then also Alex Gruen from East West Hunts, uh, Caleb and I, uh, we felt like we were on a dream hunt and Alex helped us with that. And he can help you with your dream hunts as well through the tag application process, which can be quite confusing, uh, all the way down to where you're going to stay, where, you know, do you need, uh, going to Alaska? Do you need a pilot to be able to fly you around a little bit? All that stuff, Alex can help you figure it out. Go to eastwesthunts.com. Tell them you listen to this podcast when you're doing your free consultation. You'll save 10% off of any service that you book through Alex. So, again, eastwesthunts.com. Tell them that you heard about it, uh, his website from this podcast, and you'll save yourself that 10%. And then finally, as I said, Cole and I are both big fans of Old Barn Taxidermy, the best in the taxidermy business Go check it out for yourself down in southeast Iowa, and uh, you'll be so glad that you did. I know I love going there, and uh, it's something I uh, hope to do every year. <laughs> so uh, I'm bringing them just a hide for now this year, but I'm hoping to get a buck here before the season ends with late muzzleloader and maybe even uh, get back out there with my bow uh, for this back half. But, um, yeah, go to Old Barn Tax Summary. You can find all of these businesses' links in my in these show notes or in my link tree on my instagram bio um but man thank you again to cole and thank you to everyone else for tuning in week after week couldn't uh wouldn't be worthwhile doing this without you guys so uh so uh so uh thankful for all of you tuning in um all the time but until next time everyone take care and take someone hunting